My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at Southwood, and I want to welcome you to Grace. If you have not been with us this fall, uh, you may not know that we've been walking through the book of Revelation. We're going to be continuing in the study of this incredible book that God has given to us uh, all the way up until a few weeks before Christmas. And as we've been studying this book and reading about the promises and the prophecies that God has given to us about the end of days, uh, really in all of it, our hope uh, our prayer as a church is that we wouldn't just see it as information uh, to log away in our minds, but instead it would really be uh, a future knowledge that actually provides present understanding, transforms our present understanding about knowing where we're headed. It changes the way that we live in the here and now. And one of the things we've seen repeatedly in this book is just the hope, the incredible hope that God has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. The hope of a victory that's secured, the hope of, a, of an enemy who is defeated, the hope of a glorious reign in the new heavens and a new earth with God in perfect fellowship for all of eternity. That's what God tells us time and time again in the book of Revelation. And so this morning, we're gonna be in Revelation chapter 12. If you, have there, if you wanna go there in your Bible, if you wanna go there on your phone, and as we study this chapter, uh, we're going to see just sort of verse by verse how the Lord has unveiled his plan of redemption, how he has revealed his perfect plan, his absolute power, and the incredible reliable protection that he has secured on our behalf through Jesus Christ. And as we read Revelation 12, we're going to see a lot of the attributes and actions of God essentially contrasted with the actions of our enemy, of our great spiritual enemy of Satan the enemy of God, the devil, the accuser. And it's interesting because as a culture, we recognize on some level uh, that this devil thing, it, it, it's real on some level. A lot of people would say, no, like Satan or the devil, it's this idea, it's a myth or a concept. But when we read in scripture, we find that, no, he's, he's a real person. It's a real figure who stands opposed to the will of God. And yet, on a, on a cultural level, we acknowledge he maybe exists on some level, and we see this especially in the way that we dress up our dogs, right? So as we are approaching the Halloween season, we're maybe preparing. Some of us are going to get dressed up. We have kids that are getting dressed up. And what I've discovered is that over time, we have more and more options for our little furry friends to get dressed up. Uh, for example, we can dress them up uh, as the faithful few who deliver our packages or as those rascally bandits who take them. Although I realized uh, in the nine that actually that bandit dog, his shirt says that I steal kisses. So, oh, you know, that's sweet. Uh, he's still holding a money bag, so I don't know what that means. But we, on some of them, are like, yeah, we want our dogs to like, represent these figures here in our, in our world. Maybe we want them to represent uh, the leader of the Catholic faith. Or maybe we want them to represent those strong individuals who will move a piano for us. Good for those dogs. It takes a lot of upper body strength. I respect them for it. Or maybe we think, no, they need to represent true terror in the form of a minion, right? Or we need them to represent true terror through Satan, right? We want to dress our, and I, there are so many options where you can dress your dog up like a little devil. And it's, it's phenomenal to me in some ways, because what it is, is it represents for us as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, that he is real, that we do have this spiritual enemy. And yet he is in fact formidable, but destined to fail. 
That's what we see in scripture, is that we face a spiritual enemy who is formidable and yet is destined for failure, who is already defeated by the power of the Lord, exemplified through the life and work of Jesus Christ. And so as we read Revelation 12, we're going to see these themes present themselves. We're going to see how God has a plan that should give us comfort. We're going to see that God has power that he freely bestows upon us for the sake of his purposes, for the sake of his will. And we're going to see that the Lord provides this unbelievable protection for those who belong to him, protection from the storms and the trials and the suffering of life. And so we begin in Revelation chapter 12. If you'll read with me in verse 1, John is given a vision of a sign in heaven. He says this in verse 1, that a great sign appeared in heaven. And it was a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant and was screaming in labor pain, struggling to give birth. And so we've been reading a lot of the book of Revelation in a very natural style. What I mean by that is that we take it for its word. So as it describes the judgments of God, we trust, okay, when he talks about darkening the skies, there's, he's literally darkening the skies. When we see judgment through the presence of these demonic locusts, like we can trust, like, okay, yeah, there really is this, this horrible enemy that God is going to unleash against those who oppose his will, who are in opposition to his kingdom. And yet when we get to Revelation 12, it's why it's important for us as we continue to read it naturally and normatively that we understand that this is a sign. So this is different. It's not that John is seeing these events play out with actual players, but instead it's an illustration. He's seeing this almost dramatization of past events and eventually of future events here in chapter 12. And so it starts with the sign of a woman, right, clothed in this splendor with these stars around her crown. And what this seems to signify, I would say the evidence points towards this woman being the illustration of the representation of the nation of Israel, Because we see this repeatedly in Old Testament literature, in prophecy, and in descriptions of God's work with his people. He often describes Israel as this woman who's under his protection. We see it very evidently in Genesis 37, for example. This is one of many examples. Whereas Joseph is telling his brothers about a dream that God had given him, he says, look, I had another dream, and the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And we understand from the life of Joseph that this was a prophecy, this was a promise that God had made to Joseph that the entire nation of Israel would in fact be under his authority, that he was going to be God's chosen savior for his people at that time. And so when we see this woman in labor with the moon and the sun and the stars, we can understand, okay, this is God describing these past events of how the nation of Israel has been a part of his grand plan. And as we read through 12, uh, I hope we understand that what this is, is it's almost the first part of it serves as this recap, as if you were going to watch season two of your favorite show. And you're like, what happened in season one? So you go on YouTube, you find this like eight minute video or like 37 minute video that describes like previously on show, you know, and it kind of lays out these kind of highlight, these high points, or as one pastor would say, it's it's almost like Revelation 12 has this this image of a of a stone skipping across the surface of a pond. You're you're getting these kind of bits and pieces uh, of the kind of highlight moments, these major moments in the history of God's redemptive plan. So we see this woman, Israel, in labor, seeking to give birth, and another sign appeared, verse three. And it was a huge red dragon that had seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadem crowns. 
Now, we don't have a lot of Old Testament illusions that this is drawing from. In fact, we're going to see that the, the identity of this dragon is, is revealed for us further in this passage, in this chapter. Uh, but one of the things that we need to take note of is that this is a sign that's beginning in heaven. It's describing this heavenly uh, you know, occurrence. But whenever we see crowns or diadems, these jewels described in uh, apocalyptic literature, so whether it's here in Revelation or back in uh, the book of Daniel, uh, whenever we see crowns and jewels, they tend to signify human rulers or human authority. So what we're seeing here is that, yes, it's a spiritual heavenly conflict, and yet it involves, it encompasses all of creation. It encompasses humanity itself. And now the dragon's tail, verse 4, swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to earth. And then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. So we see that the dragon has these followers, these stars that are sent to earth. And spoiler alert, we're going to discover a few verses later that this dragon signifies Satan, devil, the devil, the, the enemy of God, the accuser of mankind. And so when we see these, these stars swept down, this is one of the moments that seems to point to how Satan was able to lead a, a portion, a third of the angelic realm onto his side to believe the lie that he deserves glory more so than God. And so he sweeps the third of these stars down to earth, this demonic presence that Jesus deals with, that his people deal with, that we deal with, this demonic presence and the spiritual warfare. We're, we're seeing it described here in Revelation 12 as having happened in this past moment. And then the woman gives birth to a son. Verse 5, a male child who's going to rule over all the nations with an iron rod. And her child was suddenly caught up to God and to his throne, and she fled into the wilderness where a place had been prepared for her by God so she could be taken care of for 1,260 days. So here, again, in this dramatization taking place before the eyes of John, he sees that the nation of Israel gives birth to this ruler, to this chosen one, the one who would rule with an iron rod. And this is an illusion. This is a callback to Psalm chapter 2. What we, just, what we understand now to be a messianic psalm, a psalm that's written about the promised Messiah, the Savior of God's people, the person that we now know as Jesus Christ. And he says that as Jesus was brought into the world, as, as he was born of the nation of Israel, he was a Jew by birth, and so as he was brought into this world, he was suddenly, at one point then, though caught up to the throne room of God. So what we see here is a description of, a dramatization of the ascension. So Jesus was born in humble beginnings, right? Born in a manger, and he grew up in wisdom and stature, and he lived a life where he, uh, once he reached around the age of 30, he began to preach and perform miracles, and he began to tell people about the plans of their heavenly father. And he says that you can look at me, if you want to understand God the Father, then just look at me, because he and I are one. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus says, I have come in the fullness of the Lord. I'm, I'm now bringing to you divinity in human form. And so I want you to understand that what I'm setting up is a new kingdom, a new way of life. And one of the reasons that people were frustrated with Jesus in his day was that he didn't set up an earthly kingdom. They wanted him to show up and pull out that iron rod and lay waste to Rome, but he didn't. Instead, he told his followers time and time again that that would come, but not yet. That his initial purpose, his first and his first advent, his role, his ministry, his purpose was to establish the spiritual kingdom of the Lord to set up a new way of life, a new kingdom lifestyle. 
And so he spoke truth. He, he changed the way that his followers understand who God is and how God deals with humanity. And so Jesus, he lived this life and then he died a horrific death so that he could take on the sin of the world, right? He lived a perfect life that none of us could ever live. And yet he still died a death that he did not deserve, but a death that was able to then take on the sin of the world. He that knew no sin became sin for our sake. So that when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty. He paid the debt that we had incurred against God because of our rebellion, because of our brokenness. And then on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave and he proved that he has ultimate power. He has ultimate authority over sin and, and failure and the brokenness that held us captive, that held us slaves. When we were still children of wrath, Christ died for us so that those of us who call upon his name might be saved, so that we'd be free from sin, free from shame, free from that brokenness that held us in bondage. He says, you can call on me and you can belong. You can be adopted as sons and daughters of the Lord Most High because of my work, because of my substitutionary atonement, because of the fact that I've paid the price that you had incurred. That's the story of our gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the, the, the moment, that's the, the, the telling of our faith that, that when in the first service we had all these kids getting baptized and that, that's what they were professing. That's what they were confessing. They were saying, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ died the death that I deserved, that he paid the price that I had incurred, that through his resurrection I can be united with him, not only in his death and burial, but I can be united with him in his glorious resurrection to eternal life with my heavenly father. So Jesus, after he has accomplished that fact, he told his followers, I'm gonna go to my father's house. I'm gonna prepare a place for you. And so he ascended. We see this in Matthew 28. We see it in Acts 1, where he says, I'm leaving you with a great mission to go and make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to go and, and multiply your life through others, teaching them what you've been taught, teaching them, helping them to obey the commands that I've given. He says, but there will be a day when I come back. There will be a day that I will return and I will establish the kingdom that you desperately long for here on earth. But in the waiting, what we see is continued persecution. We see a continued struggle. And we see that right here that the nation of Israel is having to flee. This is a, a time that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24. He talks about in Mark 13, about how there is a time in the end of days when Israel, where, where those who belong to the Lord are gonna have to flee persecution into the wilderness. And God tells us that she's going to be protected in a place that God had prepared for three and a half years. What I would say, what I think is it's reasonable to see this as the second half of the tribulation that we've talked about over the last few weeks. The seven-year period where God is pouring out his judgment on the earth for the sake of not only bringing justice against his enemies, but also for the sake of bringing his people, Israel, back to repentance those who have rejected Christ as Savior, he says, I want you to see the truth. I want you to repent. I want you to come to me. And many of them do. And so it's those people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ that are persecuted, that struggle, that suffer, and they have to flee. And when we read about this, and this is going to catch us up, and as we continue through chapter 12, we're going to see more tellings about future events, not just past but when we read this, I, I, I can really only describe the plan of the Lord as dramatic. Right, when we see God give this kind of highlight reel, these, high, these major moments in his plan, I read them like, goodness gracious, he's a good storyteller. 
Right? There, there's highs and there's lows. There's twists and turns. We're going to get to a big plot twist here in a few verses. And this is something that I think is really, it's telling. And it's, I think, a good explanation for why we as people, we love dramatic stories, right? We might not always love, like, the drama, but we love, we love dramatic stories. We want stories to have tension and highs and lows and twists and turns. That's something that resonates with us when we watch a show or watch a movie or read a book, right? We want something that's dramatic, that's exciting, where there's struggle and tension. It's something that I remember having to kind of teach my kids about as we would play. Uh, I remember at one point, my old, you know, our oldest, my daughter, and, and one of her brothers, we were sitting down. We were trying to set up this grand, epic tale of My Little Pony, because she had been given about 30 or 40 My Little Pony dolls. And so we're, they're like, play with us. I'm like, okay. And so we begin to set up this kingdom and this, the, all these rules. And we're picking out which ponies are ours. And they're deciding like, okay, so he has these powers and she has those powers. And we've created this, you know, grand, epic. And I'm there as their father to try to like help, you know, move things along. And so I start to create this like drama, this bat, this, I be, begin building out all this lore. And I'm like, well, so the ponies are in the kingdom, but then the great bear of Gilgamesh shows up and he says, you must bring to me these three items or I'll destroy the pony kingdom in, in four days. And then, you know, try to set up this epic struggle. And my daughter and son, their like go-to was like, oh, you need that thing? Well, we already have all of them. Here you go. I was like, you guys, you're boring, right? Like, that's not, that's not how stories work, right? I was like, we need conflict. Like, we need tension. We need drama. That pony's going to die. You know, like, we need something to happen. Not really that intense, but we need something, right? There's a part of us that, like, we, we want there to be this struggle, and that's what, that is, I think, a part of us being image bearers of God, that God, in his mercy, in his providence, he reveals himself in this dramatic way. And I think it increases our appreciation for his sovereignty. It increases our appreciation for his authority, for his incredible story writing skills. And yet, in the midst of that drama, what happens is we forget about the destination, and we find ourselves so caught up in the story, so caught up in the tale that we're overcome with fear or frustration and anxiety about what's next. And we forget that God has actually already told us how it all ends. He's already told us that he's coming out on top, that his people belong to him. They'll never be separated from him, that his love prevails, that his power prevails. We need to be reminded and reassured about where this is all headed, even in the ups, even in the downs, even in the twists, even in the turns, that God is ultimately in control and that the destination is good. It is good. When I comfort one of my kids, just yesterday, our five-year-old, he like bonked his head on the wall and he's like sitting there, he's upset. Like it's good for me, it's important for me in that moment to comfort him by going to him, just like, hey, I'm here, I'm with you. All right, that's good. Like I need to reassure him of my current presence. But I also need to be telling, I need to reassure him about where it's going to go, like where it's going to end. I'm looking at his head. I'm like, hey, you don't have, there's no blood. Like, wait, is there blood? No, okay, there's no blood. Like, you're going to be fine. Like, I need to give him that reassurance of where things are headed, reminding him of the destination of that struggle. God has given that to us in his word. He says, you can trust that through me you will overcome. You can trust that lies will be exposed that temptation can be resisted, that death itself has been defeated. The destination is good, and so we ask the Lord for faith. We ask him to increase our trust in him, 
We're given this command repeatedly in Scripture. This is alluded to throughout the Old and New Testament. When Paul was writing a letter to the church in Rome, he quotes from Isaiah, and he says that the root of Jesse will come, and the one who rises to rule over the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. So he says, remember, your hope is in Jesus Christ. So now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's saying, yes, there's a call to belief. He says, but realize that even as you choose to believe in Jesus Christ as your hope, you in and of yourselves are not able to generate all of the hope that you need. You don't have the ability to persevere just through, by pulling up your bootstraps. He says, you need to be reliant upon the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be reliant upon the power of God himself. When Jesus gave high commands to his followers, they asked him, God, Jesus, increase our faith. We ask the Lord to deepen our trust, to give us the hope that we really can't generate on our own. In the highs, in the lows, in the twists, in the turns, we say, God, I trust that your plan is, is real, that it is good, but God, I need you to show up. I need you to fan into flame this hope that you've given to me by the power of your spirit. And as we trust in the plan of the Lord, what's incredible is he has promised to provide to us power and strength even in the persecution, even in the waiting. We're told this in verse seven, that the war broke out, that then a war broke out in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But the dragon was not strong enough to prevail. So there was no longer any place left in heaven for him and his angels. And so that huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world was thrown down to the earth and his angels along with him. This is the big plot twist. This, we, we can't miss how dramatic this was for the original audience receiving this letter. Where yes, there was probably speculation. There was probably you know, some interpretive uh, discussion amongst God's people about, hey, you know, when God talked about the, you know, when Moses wrote down about the Garden of Eden and there was that serpent that deceived, like they probably were able to ascertain, like that was, that was probably not just like a regular snake. Like it probably wasn't just like Sammy the snake that was just really mean. Like they realized on some level, probably up to that point, okay, there is a spiritual warfare and like this is the enemy. But here in Revelation 12, for the first time, is absolute undeniable confirmation that that serpent, that that, that temptation to sin that Adam, Adam and Eve took, just hook, line, and sinker, it came about through the work of their enemy, Satan. That great dragon is the same as the ancient serpent, the enemy of God, Satan, the deceiver, the devil. And yet, in this future conflict, there's a moment that comes where he's at war against God and he's and the, and the army of heaven and he's cast out. There's no longer a place for him. And this is significant because we don't really talk about this or think about this a lot, but in our current age, Satan still has access to the throne room of God. We see this repeatedly in scripture. In the Old Testament, we see in Job 1 and 2 where Satan is before the throne of God and he's accusing Job. He says, hey, you know, you think Job loves you, but, you know, let him suffer a little bit and he'll turn, he'll turn away. And God's like, all right, let's see what happens. Or in Zechariah 3, Joshua, the high priest of Israel at that time, Zechariah is caught up and he sees this vision in, in, in heaven and he sees how Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan was standing at his right hand to accuse him. 
that there is some form of access that Satan has to the presence of God in this current age, that in this future paddle will eventually be done away with, where God says, you know what? It's done. We're done. I'm no longer going to hear your accusations. I'm no longer going to hear your arguments against my people. And so he's cast out. And as he's cast out, this voice from heaven, these voices from heaven, they declare this kind of woe against the earth. They say that the salvation and the power, verse 10, and the kingdom of our God and the ruling authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the one who accuses them day and night before our God, has been thrown down. But... They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. So this voice, these voices from heaven, they're saying, look, Satan has been cast out. The deceiver is now fully dedicated to destruction. And he's going to bring that destructive energy. He's going to bring that hatred against the people of God. He says, but they will be able to overcome. How? By their own strength, by their own power, by their wisdom, their craftiness? No. He says they're going to overcome him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. In other words, their affirmation of who God is, of what Jesus has done for them. And he says, and they're going to persevere and overcome even because they recognize that their lives are not, on earth are not the end all be all. So note here that, that he's not saying that overcoming, that conquest equals comfort. It seems to be that there is going to be persecution, there's going to be suffering, and even death for those who belong to the Lord in these tribulation times. But the voice of heaven is declaring that they will still overcome. The end is that that death is not their end because they belong to the Lord. They belong to his purpose and his plan. They are under his protection. Therefore, the heavens rejoice. Let the heavens rejoice and all who reside in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you. He is filled with terrible anger for he knows that he only has a little time. Woe to the earth. Woe to those who live during these days because it's going to be difficult. There's going to be trial. There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be suffering and even death. But take hope in knowing that God's power is still absolute. That even though it might not be comfortable, that conquest is secured in Christ. God's power is absolute. His power will overcome. It's why Jesus told his followers, yeah, you're going to suffer and face persecution in this world. You're going to be rejected just as rejected. But he says, but you don't have to fear the world. You don't have to fear these things. Why? Because I've already overcome it. Because there's a better life. There's an eternity waiting for you where there is not sorrow, there is not fear, there, is not, there aren't tears, there isn't you know, suffering. Instead, he says, I, I've secured for you and I've given you my Holy Spirit as a down payment of this incredible eternal bliss and reward that is waiting for you beyond this world. And yet, it's still easy for us to maybe think that discomfort, that, that dismay, that the sorrow of the here and now, that it somehow equals defeat. That it's somehow a testament against the power of God or against the plan of God. But it's simply not the case. God's story is dramatic. Again, he has not promised that we will be free from all suffering, but he has promised that we will overcome. Not necessarily in this life. Not necessarily because everything looks the way we want it to look. But we will overcome because we belong to him. And Jesus says, no one snatches us out of the Father's hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. Jesus says, take hope. 
And that's why he says you should set your sights on heaven. You should put your mind on the things above. You should lay your treasure up there because that's where your heart's going to follow. And that's the place where your treasure won't rust or be destroyed, won't be stolen by thieves. It says we can hope in heaven. And that hope that we have in the world beyond and the promises that God has given, that's what allows us to be content in all circumstances. Why we can ask the Lord to, to embolden our hearts, to, to reassure our minds, to give us the peace of Christ that under, that that surpasses all understanding, and we can be content. This is what Paul talks about to the church in Philippi, where he tells them that he's experienced a a lot of hardship. He says, I've experienced times of need, and I've had times of abundance. And in any and every circumstance, I have actually learned the secret of contentment. Whether I go satisfied or hungry, and whether I have plenty or whether I have nothing, how do I do this? How do I, how do I maintain contentment in all these circumstances? Well, I'll tell you, I am able to do all these things through the one who strengthens me. And this is a verse that sometimes, you know, a Christian, like a private school, slap on the back of their football jersey and they're like, yeah, I can block that linebacker, Jesus. You know, like that's sometimes our temptation. And that is a misrepresentation of this verse. Paul's not talking about, right, block, like just doing in a great block on the O-line. Paul is saying, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. That's the able, the ability to do all things. I have learned that I can be steadfast in my faith. I can be steadfast in my heart and in my mind, secure in the Lord. How? Because I'm relying on his strength. I'm relying upon his comfort, on his peace. Paul's not saying it's it's because I'm a cut above the rest. It's not saying it's because I'm just, you know, I'm strong and you're weak. Paul says, I am able to persevere and find contentment because I trust the Lord to provide what I need. So we ask the Lord to deepen our faith in his plan. We ask the Lord through his power to give us contentment in all circumstances. And in that contentment, in that strength that he provides, we're able, we're enabled to run to him for the protection that he promises. We see this play out at the end of chapter 12, starting in verse 3. 13, where we're told that the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to earth, and so he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So Satan is cast out of heaven. Again, this future conflict, he's cast out of heaven, and he's decided, okay, I'm no longer about deception. I'm all about destruction. So he's pursuing Israel, the one who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a giant eagle so she could fly out into the wilderness to the place God had prepared for her, where she's taken care of, away from the presence of the serpent for a time, times, and half a time. Again, it's this allusion to what Jesus had already talked about, these, end, these ending days where his followers would have to run and flee into the wilderness, Matthew 24, Mark 13. And it's for this time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. It's the same thing that Daniel talks about in Daniel 11, where it's a year, two years, and half a year. That's, that's the time that we're talking about. And so it's the second half of the tribulation where where all the world, with Satan and his his enemy and his his armies are are allied against the nation of Israel, with those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, the Israelites who have repented of their previous rejection of Christ. Now they see him as the Savior, and they're having to flee this persecution. And then the serpent spouted water like a river out of his mouth after the woman in an attempt to sweep her away by a flood. And then verse 16, but the earth came to a rescue and the ground opened up and swallowed the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. Okay, so remember, this is all dramatization. John isn't watching this actually play out. He's watching a telling of these events. 
And so we don't know, is that water, uh, literal water, is that water a representation of, a, of an army, of like a military force? We're, we're not sure. But either way, the point is that God is describing his protection of his people. He's saying, yeah, persecution is going to come, but my power is greater. My refuge is reliable. It's the same promise he gave to them in Isaiah chapter 43, that when you pass through the waters, I'm with you. When you pass through the streams, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. The flames will not harm you. Again, God is not talking in Isaiah 43 probably about literal water and streams and rivers and fires, but he's saying, I'm with you in whatever this world throws at you. And he's fulfilling that promise in Revelation 12. And so the dragon became enraged in verse 17. He's enraged at the woman and went away to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep God's commandments and hold to the testimony about Jesus. So Satan, our enemy, he's frustrated by the power of the Lord, by the protection that he offers to his people. And so he just commits himself doubly so to making war on those who confess Jesus as Lord who keep God's commandments, who hold to their testimony about Jesus Christ. He says, I'm going to lay waste however I can in whatever time I have left. But recognize that even in that persecution, even in that suffering, even that suffering that may in fact lead to the death of some, we see that God's protection is still reliable. We see that his power is still secure. His authority is still absolute. And yet, It's easy for us to read about these promises, to see the protection of the Lord, and yet still fall into this trap of refusing the refuge that God has provided. I remember growing up, uh, when I would get sick, that was like the best time. I loved getting sick as a little kid because when I got sick, that meant that I didn't have to go to school. Boom. I mean, that's really all you need. Didn't have to go to school. I got to like lay on the couch all day. I got to sleep on the couch uh, I got to watch Star Wars on VHS just like over and over and over, like pop that back in the rewinder, let's go again, like just all day. And I got to drink root beer all day. And that wasn't a common occurrence. Maybe some of you are like, oh yeah, I grew up with root beer, whatever. Well, good for you. Because for me, sick days, that was the root beer day. And so it was awesome for me when I got sick. The only downside, the only bummer to sickness at that time was that I had to take medicine. And so my parents, they would try to, you know, they'd give me medicine. My mom would come by and be like, okay, like, here you go. Here, she was 97 years old. Here you go. Right? But she would, uh, she would give me these, we had these chewable, like, Tylenol tablets. She's like, you got to, you know, eat this up, and it'll help you feel better. Right? It'll bring your fever down. And they were fruit-flavored. But honestly, like, these things, like, yeah, they were kind of fruit-flavored. It tasted sort of like someone had already kind of gotten a strawberry, chewed it up, and spit it back out. Like, that's kind of the fruit flavor that was contained in these tablets. And so I didn't like it. And so what would happen is I learned that as my mom would hand me the tablet, I'd be like, oh, thanks, mom. Mm-hmm. All good. She'd be like, okay, see you later. You know, and she'd walk off. And then I would bleh, I'd spit that tablet back out and I would bury it in the couch cushion like a squirrel preparing for winter. And weeks or months, maybe years went by. Until there were, I definitely remember there was a moment where we're cleaning the living room and we're like cleaning up the couch and we pull out that couch cushion and suddenly we discover the waste of Jacob's past, you know, sickness. And we see just dozens of like half rotted Tylenol tablets that were just laying, just rotting underneath our couch cushions. And I got in trouble, you know, and I told my parents this like a week ago and they're like, yeah, you're in trouble again. I was like, that's fine. You know, I'll take it. 
But what happened? It was, I was given this opportunity for health. Like I was given this opportunity for refuge and I just rejected it. I said, no, I don't want that. And in the same way, many times we might get frustrated. We might be hurt. We might be in pain. We might be struggling with something in life, a circumstance that's outside of our expectations, choices that we're dealing with that others made that hurt us. And, And there's a temptation in us to, in that suffering and in that pain, to just kind of pull back and maybe lick our own wounds. And we're bitter, we're frustrated at God. And we're told repeatedly in scripture that God says, I want you to come to me in your hurt. I want you to come to me in your pain. We read this repeatedly in the Psalms where David and other psalmists will write about God. I don't know where you are. Like I'm hurt, like these enemies are surrounding me. And what's so incredible about those Psalms is they confess the reality of human existence, the suffering that exists in this world. But what's amazing about these Psalms is that time and time again, by the end of that passage, by the end of that poem or that song, they say, but God, I'm gonna choose to run to you. I think that's what made David really a man after God's own heart is that even in pain, even in struggle, even in poor decisions that David himself made, he ran to the Lord, not away from him. We have been given hope and refuge. God says, I'm your strong tower. I want you to take refuge and comfort in the shadow of my wings. So in the struggles and the, and the trials and the hardship of life, we should be asking the Lord for his protection, fighting back against that sinful, selfish urge to just pull away and instead to run in his open, ready, willing arms. It's what James commands the church, early believers, as he's talking to them about living a life of faith. He says that you should submit to God, that you should, yes, resist the devil, and he will, in fact, flee from you, but draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He says it's not just that you should uh, prepare yourself for spiritual attack. I mean, he says, yes, that's good, and we can trust in the power of the Lord, that Satan cannot, cannot overcome the defense that God provides. He says, but it's more than just resisting temptation. He says, it's also drawing near to the Lord. It's not just fleeing the devil and going to our own devices. He says, you flee what is wrong. You flee what is evil, but you run towards the Lord who's ready to draw near, who's ready to comfort and provide and protect as only he can. And so, This morning, as we close our time in worship, this is my prayer, this is my hope, is that we would recognize the power of God demonstrated through his sovereign plan that, yes, is dramatic, that, yes, has times where uh, it's, it's hard or it's difficult or maybe it's amazing and joyous, but in every twist and in every turn, God's power is absolute. His protection is ready. That our God and his might and in his splendor is actually for us. My prayer is that we would remember that. That even though life can be disappointing, even though relationships can fail, even though this semester might be going a completely different direction than we thought it would go, we can trust that God is in control. That he is ready to comfort us that because of his work through Jesus Christ, we have a hope that transcends this existence. We face an enemy who's formidable yet destined to fail. We have a promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. So that's what we're singing about. That's what we're declaring. That God is good, that Christ is King, that we have a hope that transcends all of the frustrations and the fears and the trials and tribulations of this world. 
So if you would, let's stand together. Let's prepare to sing and let's pray and ask the Lord to set our hearts and minds on him. God, we thank you that you've given us this incredible hope beyond ourselves. God, this promise of redemption in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that he has made a way for us to become more than conquerors. That God, that we can overcome the, the, the struggles and the pain and the disappointment of this world. God, not through our ability, not through our strength, not through our accomplishment, but God, by his alone. So Lord, we pray that you would be present with us that, God, that we would run to you in the time of struggle, in the time of trial. That, God, that we would recognize that you have made a way for us to know you, to be safe in your arms. So, God, we pray that as we sing these words, as we declare your praise and your power and your authority, that, God, this really would be the cry of our hearts. That, God, this would be the mindset that we adopt, that we maintain through every circumstance and every situation. God, use these songs to set our minds on the things above, on you, yourself, your unconquerable power. God, your unchangeable nature. God, your faithful promises that you've given to us. God, we pray these things. We ask it all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.